0: Thanks, Adam. Let's pray. Father, now as we are in our different locations uh, and as we face various challenges, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us. That we would be able to hear and put into practice your word, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, some some very sobering reading I recently did was a 98 page report about a church and its leaders. It's an overseas conservative evangelical church. Until recently, this church had been championed as a model for gospel shaped mission and church life. God has used this ministry to lead many to salvation. It's inspired many to have a deep commitment to God's mission and its leader was celebrated in international evangelical circles. He became highly influential. But in the past few years, multiple allegations arose of a pattern and culture in the church that was called by many spiritual abuse. The allegations triggered the resignation of the leader. It was a detailed formal review, hence the report I was reading, and many tears and much pain. And the report raises many issues, including issues of accountability and leadership structure. But the issue I want to focus on right now is about sin and grace. Uh, The report was uh, based on many interviews with many people from the church and to quote it, uh, there was a widespread view expressed by participants that within the church culture, there was an overemphasis on sin and an underemphasis on grace. And the report describes how these grace problems permeated the church and the culture. It affected membership commitment expectations. It affected views of authority and pastoral care and more. And yet the thing is, nobody would deny that this church believed in grace. They preached a conservative evangelical reform doctrine of grace. It's just that on the ground, it seems in so many instances, grace was not a key feature of this church's ministry and relationships with disastrous results. Now, I'm raising this because of our Bible passage today. It comes close to the start of one Timothy and one Timothy is a letter all about church and ministry and mission. But this passage is all about sin and grace. And it prompts us to ask, what is grace exactly? And how can we ensure that grace truly is central to everything we do in ministry? When is it some kind of zero sum game so that where sin increases, grace must decrease or something like that or something else? Now, last week, Pete shared from us from the same passage, a fantastic message about how the gospel of grace motivates mission. And today I just want to dive even deeper to explore the shape of grace, what it means for our lives and our ministries. And I want us to grasp that in Christian ministry, grace can't only be the content that we preach. Grace must also permeate and transform everything about us personally. And I want to give some suggestions for things that we can do, even now in lockdown, to wage the good warfare of grace. Last week from verse three or a couple of weeks ago from verse three, we saw that Paul is urging Timothy to command certain people not to teach differently. Paul says to Timothy, unlike these false teachers, his aim must be love. A love that comes from purity of heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, a holiness and indeed a morality that's all in line with the gospel without hypocrisy. And that gospel has been entrusted to Paul. And from verse 12, Paul describes how this gospel of grace permeates his own ministry. There are three sections with three verses each. Firstly, Paul's experience of grace in ministry. Second, Paul's theology of grace in ministry. And thirdly, implications of grace for ministry. So first, let's look at Paul's experience of grace in ministry. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Where does Paul begin? With thankfulness, gratitude to Christ Jesus. Christ, who provides all his ability, all his power for his ministry. Why does Paul give Christ thanks? Because Christ considered Paul faithful. That is, Christ entrusted Paul with this task of gospel ministry. Christ considered Paul trustworthy to do that wonderful ministry job. And you might think that's unremarkable. After all, he's Paul until you remember who Paul was when Christ gave him the job. Paul showed every possible indication of being completely unqualified. He wasn't even a Christian. Worse than that, he was persecuting the church. It was the exact opposite of trustworthy. Christ appointing Paul to ministry was it's like a fire brigade giving a job to an arsonist. Paul was a sinner big time. Did you notice that Paul uses three different words here to fill out the three dimensions of his sinfulness? Firstly, there's a God words dimension to Paul's sin. He was a blasphemer, slandering Jesus our Lord. Secondly, he was there's a church words dimension to Paul's sin. He was a persecutor Thirdly, There's an inwards dimension to Paul's sin. He was insolent, arrogant and proud. And these provide a 3D picture of Paul's unworthiness to receive his ministry. But Paul was shown mercy. He was rescued from sin. He was saved. And on top of that, he was appointed as an apostle for this ministry. Paul, that ignorant unbeliever acting out his unbelief. I I don't think Paul's brief mention of ignorance here is there to suggest that there was some kind of mitigating factor, as if Paul was saying, oh, it wasn't that bad because I didn't know what I was doing. No, I, we took it that way. It would contradict everything else Paul says here and also el- elsewhere. And I, actually, I think it's out of step with the Greek grammar and you can ask the third years about that. I'm thinking and I, I, what, I, what I think this passage is saying is that Paul had culpable ignorance. He acted in unbelief. And yet, The point is, contrary to all the human evidence, Christ considered Paul trustworthy for ministry. He showed him mercy, just as in Romans, we learn that God considers us righteous when we're not righteous. So here Christ considered Paul worthy of trust for ministry when he was the precise opposite. But this very consideration, this decision by Christ created The reality itself, Christ's grace overflowed. That mercy and grace in salvation brought with it faith in Christ and love for others. Grace brought transformation and it was a full 3D transformation. Do you see in the Godwards direction, the former slanderer of Christ now calls Christ Lord. In the inwards direction, the former insolent, arrogant, proud man now trusts Christ as saviour. And in the churchwards direction, the former persecutor of Christ's people now deeply loves Christ's people. And brothers, this is grace. Grace is given to those who are entirely unworthy to receive it. And yet at the same time, grace is profoundly transforming. How is that? That's because grace is always and forever in and through Christ Jesus the gift of salvation in Christ. It's not sort of some kind of random gift with no strings attached. No, grace comes with Christ attached. It is Christ. And that is why it is so wonderful and overflowing. And yet it is always for we who are unworthy. And that's why true grace leads us to these things, to joyful thankfulness, to praise to God, to humility, and love for others. That's what grace does. And do you feel that brothers? Do you feel it? The thankfulness and the joy and the praise. Grace to the unworthy. That was Paul's experience of grace in life and in ministry. And then in the following verses, Paul goes deeper to talk about his theology of grace in ministry. Now, at first, verses 15 to 17 might seem a bit repetitive because they have the same basic structure as verses 12 to 14. But there's something new here. Verses 15 to 17 is a theological picture of Paul's life and ministry. Paul spells out this theology of grace. Although as he does, he applies it to himself. In fact, he applies it to his ministry. So verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. of whom I I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. That is the gospel, isn't it? A message of grace for sinners through Jesus to God's glory. Christ Jesus came for sinners, to rescue them from God's judgment, to bring them to eternal life. Saving sinners isn't just some side issue. Saving sinners is not just one effect of the gospel. Saving sinners is not just the final bit of Christ's incarnate life. It was the whole point of Christ's incarnate life. And that, says Paul, is fundamental for his life and for his ministry. The gospel applies to this minister even more profoundly than anyone because he was the arrogant, blaspheming persecutor. He is the foremost of sinners. He is the foremost of sinners. Did you notice the present tense? I am the foremost. He could have chosen to use the past tense. He could have said, I was the foremost of sinners, but he didn't. Because for Paul, that phrase foremost of sinners says something about his identity even now. Now, of course, there are things that are truly in the past for Paul. He was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor, an insolent person. In terms of his personal experience, Paul has been transformed and is continuing to be transformed. Yet at the same time, in terms of his deep theology of grace, Paul's identity is still shaped by this reality, foremost of sinners. Luther put it this way, simultaneously justified and a sinner. He might be uncomfortable with this, because it sounds like an excuse to sin, doesn't it? But that's not at all how it works here. What's the reason and result of Paul identifying as a sinner? Not to make him sin, but to make him humble and thankful. And in fact, it is actually in the very act of Paul's recognizing that he is a sinner who has received grace, that the act that that is the act of Paul putting to death his sin of arrogance being transformed from an insolent blasphemer to a humble, thankful praiser of God. And that truth about Paul's sin and God's grace in Christ Jesus permeates Paul's ministry. He was shown mercy so that grace would overflow. He was saved, yes, to proclaim God's grace. He was saved to be a living demonstration of that grace. Paul's life becomes a pattern for others of, of patience and mercy. The word example here means a, it's a prototype or a, a stamp. Ministry for Paul and in fact in many ways for us, it's like a printing press. The pattern, the stamp, the impression, it, it, it's you, you and your own life. You turn on the printing press and your life produces copies, hundreds of copies. And those copies produce thousands of copies, people. And these people don't just hear what you say, they imitate who you are. And I hope that makes you just a little bit scared because if you get the stamp wrong, the copies are going to be wrong, aren't they? And on the last day, this will be seen for what it is. But before you get crushed by the weight of expectation, We need to come back to remember exactly what this stamp is. It's not a stamp of your own power or ability to do right. It's a stamp of God's grace in Christ. Grace shown to the unworthy. Which is also, of course, a grace that transforms. Paul's life is not a stamp of perfection. It's a stamp of constant return to grace. Grace in Christ Jesus. It's a stamp of humility. It's a stamp of faith, of praise and thankfulness to God and of love, love that flows out to others from God's grace. Recognising your own unworthiness constantly and seeing who you are as a sinner saved and transformed in Christ constantly. Believing in him for eternal life. And you can't in the end fake that. This is about where you find your worth. And if your worth, your self worth is caught up somehow in your own ministry, that will be a disaster. If your self worth is caught up in your own goodness or your own abilities or your own church or your own mission organization or your own reputation or even your own sense of righteous persecution, then despite what you say about grace, the copies you create will be people whose self worth is also caught up, not in God's grace, but in their own goodness or abilities or church or mission organization or even. Their own sense of being a persecuted, faithful remnant, whatever it is to be formed as this stamp, we must put an absolute priority, not just on being gracious to others, which we must be, but on recognizing God's grace to us, practicing faith and humility and love, practicing, praising and glorifying God, the king of the ages, the only God. And that's why paul spent this time going deep into his experience of grace in ministry and his theology of grace in ministry because then he can return to talk about timothy's ministry and those false teachers in ephesus in verses 18 to 20 paul draws out some implications of grace for ministry verse 18 this charge i entrust to you timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. See, how do you apply grace in ministry? There are wrong ways that you could apply this theology of sin and grace in ministry. For example, you could use grace as an excuse for your own sin in ministry. When you treat somebody badly, When you're arrogant as a gospel minister, you could simply say, well, everyone's a sinner. God's gracious. Move on. Nothing to see here. Or you could use grace as an excuse for the sin of other ministers you're responsible for. You you see them treating others badly or being arrogant. You simply say, well, they're sinners. We need to be gracious to them. Now, it is true that God's grace undergirds everything. But that's never an excuse for sin in ministry. Paul says to Timothy, hold faith and a good conscience. Do you see transforming grace? Timothy must do what is right. Love and doing right is fundamental to this response to grace. What did Paul do with Hymenaeus and Alexander? They were blaspheming. So Paul says to Timothy, are they just blaspheming? "Ah, It's all right. I was a blasphemer. And God showed me grace. God didn't mind, he showed me grace. I'm gonna show grace to them too, to those blasphemers. And I'm gonna be kind and just let them keep going. No, he didn't. No, he ensured proper discipline procedures happened. That's what handing over to Satan is all about because grace does not cause sin. Grace creates humility and thankfulness and praise and love and a good conscience and transformation. But it's not easy, it's a war. It's a struggle. It's a spiritual struggle. Wage the good warfare. There is a battle to live out that grace. And that's why chapter one is here in 1 Timothy. Grace is the foundation for everything else Paul has to say in his letter about church and prayer and men and women and teaching and overseers and deacons and accountability for elders. And everything else, grace comes first. The false teachers rejected it. God's grace in Christ had not permeated their lives. It hadn't produced the humility of faith and admitting sin. It hadn't produced a good conscience for them. That was a disaster for them and for their hearers. Paul called it a shipwreck. I guess we'd call it a train wreck. How will you avoid your ministry becoming a train wreck? Only by God's grace which is powerful. Not just by being solid on the doctrines of grace, though you do need to be very solid on the doctrines of grace. Not just by preaching grace effectively, though it would be good for you to preach grace well, but more by allowing God's grace to permeate your own life and your responses in every way. Grace must form the core of your own personal identity and everything in you. And that is something that you can practise and press into even now in lockdown. Practice being the faithful minister of the gospel. Not finding worth in yourself, but admitting your sin and humbly thanking and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners. Let's pray. Father, we praise and thank you for your grace. Father, we pray that you might make us more and more thankful. Humble us. Form us. And give us in your grace that sense of your grace that we might be an example to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.